This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, my name is Todd Weir, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Intellectual History. In 1873, Rudolf Virchow, who was a well-known Prussian liberal and scientist, declared in Parliament that the liberals and the German state were waging a Kulturkampf, a culture war, against Catholicism, which they understood to be the chief hindrance to progress and modernity. In the past two decades or so, historians have rediscovered the Kulturkampf of the 1870s as a pivotal event in German history that contributed to a confessionally divided political landscape in Germany. The term has recently been liberated from its German origin and applied to Europe as a whole, so that we now speak of a transnational culture war between the forces, generally speaking, of liberalism and modern global Catholicism. Historians have appropriated ideas from literary science, literary studies, about the ways in which the binary opposition of self and other uh, helped to contribute to identities, and they have called in this context Catholicism the other of modernity. Modernity understood to be implicitly as secular and possibly Protestant. But what of the other religious others of European modernity, the Jews? How did Jews relate to, contribute to, perhaps oppose, or even manipulate anti-Catholicism? These are questions explored by Ari Yoskovich in his new book, The Modernity of Others, Jewish Anti-Catholicism in Germany and France, which recently came out with Stanford University Press in the Studies in Jewish History and Culture. This is a very ambitious work, which takes the reader from the late, environment, late Enlightenment to the 20th century and from France to Germany and back again. So uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Ari to this show. Thank you. And uh, let me first of all compliment you on a wonderfully written book. Uh, I, I appreciate your style, um, uh, especially if I'm correct, it's not your first language, That's English. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> well, lovely English style. Um, so, so let's just start off with with the question that we usually ask, which is uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself, um, uh, something about the interests that led you to this project. Mm-hmm. Well, this project actually grew out of an engagement with German history, European history, and Jewish history in grad school. And it started with the Virchow speech that you mentioned, which we read in grad school in a seminar. And in that speech, where Virchow coins the term Kulturkampf, he actually also speaks about the Jews. He explains that Catholics are a problem for the state in, in the way they constitute a separate body. And then he singles out the Jews and says, well, the Jews actually show a different model. You don't need to be hierarchical. You don't need to have a Pope to survive through the millennia and be successful. So my first question was, well, do we have that often? Is that 
a standard line. And I couldn't find a whole lot actually about that. And then I switched around the question, well, what did the Jews say about all that? Were they, this is an invitation, did they accept the invitation? Um, and out of this developed uh, my first article on the subject, actually, which is on the Kulturkampf. So this is for German historians, modern German historians, one of the key moments of political history, um, a conflict between liberals and Catholics, as you said, that deeply traumatizes Catholics, certainly. Um, it's completely absent from Jewish history. Um, so my question was, what do Jews say to the central moment of of German political history. Um, and I found that they do actually participate in some ways in that moment, and it is, it is actually an opportunity for them, an opportunity just before the rise of anti-Semitism. So once I wrote this article, I, well, I you know, circulated it, I spoke to colleagues, and one colleague asked me, first of all, well, is this a German thing? And uh, I didn't know, um, which motivated me to go to, to broaden my scope geographically. And then he asked me if this is indeed the first instance of this. Anti-Catholicism didn't actually start in the 1870s, as we know. And as I was researching that, I became more and more interested in the similarities across borders. And I ended up writing about Germany and France, um, two very different countries. One, Germany is split between Catholics and Protestants. And in the German Empire, as it congeals in the 1870s, it's one-third Catholics, two-thirds Protestants. France is really predominantly Catholic, and, and Protestants have a very different role there, and a much more symbolic role, perhaps. So I decided on two countries that are very different, but this could have been written about many other countries. There is a, an Atlantic phenomenon here, in fact, of anti-Catholicism. And then I also started to go backwards, and I discovered for myself that, even though I wanted to write a book originally about the late 19th century, the most interesting stuff is really happening earlier. Um, and I try to trace this phenomenon of Jews speaking about the Catholic Church back all the way to the point when Jews enter politics for the first time, enter modern politics for the first time. That is, they don't just you know, diplomatically try to appeal to the king you know, to avert an expulsion or something similar. They actually cr try to create alliances with new political movements and that pretty much happens in the late Enlightenment and around the French Revolution, or just before the French Revolution in France. Um, and that's then the book that developed out of that is a book that goes all the way from the very earliest statements in German and French on anything political to the point when I believe anti-Catholicism really starts to decline as a political, as a central political feature of their life. It doesn't disappear, of course, as a private opinion one might hold, and that can continue until today. Um, but that's the, so the late 18th century to the early 20th century. Excellent. Um, just to, before we actually go into the book, I have a few questions sort of uh, about, uh, you know, this way in which this book is situated or where this book is situated uh, in, in debates that are going on now amongst mm -hmm. historians and, and scholars in various disciplines. And um, the, the, the first was uh, something about the, the disciplines. Um, this book is a work of uh, German history, French history, Jewish history, among other histories we could identify. Um, can you say something about the, the, the ways in which these disciplines perhaps interact 
that might say something or indicate why this topic has not appealed to historians until recently? I mean, you mentioned maybe one or two other historians, but probably in English, this is the first major study of this phenomenon, Jewish anti-Catholicism. Why has that not been attractive to historians previously? Um, So there there have been two very small studies before, um, and they both came out of Jewish history. So if you want to locate where, where interest has been, before I, I wrote this book. Um, and if my sense is, well, German historians actually found an interest in, in Jews, not just as, as well, victims of mass violence, only very, rather late. So it, I'm, I'm already a generation of, 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 I'm already an historian who grew up basically, you know, was socialized into an academic world where that is normal. But up to the 80s, 1980s, I would say, Jewish history was somewhere on the margins of, of, of German history. Um, why haven't, so the question is really why haven't Jewish historians, the, those people who have well, founded whole institutes just to study German Jewry, like the Leo Beck Institute, why haven't they studied this topic? And my sense is that there are two, two basic reasons. Well, one is that it might be seen as as an embarrassment, at least when you put it in those terms. That is, when you use the word anti-Catholicism, which is seen as an exclusively negative term. This is very different than the term anti-clericalism, which is a term that is used much more in French history, um, where people also have spoken about Jews being anti-clerical sometimes. Um, It's much more neutral. It can it can go either way. It depends on, on who's speaking, if it's a negative term. So once you use the term anti-Catholicism, I think there was little interest in describing Jews, a marginalized group that well, faced the genocide in Germany, to then basically accuse them of something like anti-Catholicism, which, well, even with the structure of the word, sounds so much like anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And I think the people who were skeptical about that were also right. The parallel really doesn't work, even though it, the, the term sounds similar and constructed in a similar way. It meant something very different. Um, so embarrassment is one reason. The other reason is really that when they did touch on it, it was seen as the inverse of Catholic anti-Semitism. So it's basically a defensive move. Um, the Catholics were basically accusing the Jews. So obviously, as a reaction, they would what well, wasn't even called critique necessarily. It was it, it was just they were defending themselves. Um, so my my intervention is to really see to read Jewish anti-Catholicism like. And like Catholic anti-Semitism has been read, that is, as something independent, something that certainly comes out of a complex environment. Um, and what Catholics do, of course, will motivate Jews to do things. But there is an independent story there, nevertheless. Um, it's a story that has a lot to do with how Jews feel about themselves, not what Catholics did. And it's only once you take that step, I believe, that it becomes actually an interesting story, because now it is a story about how does a minority become modern? How do Jews, one marginalized group, really think about themselves as members of a modern society by speaking about another group um, that in certain contexts was marginalized? Um, and as long as you see it simply as a defensive move, 
that's just not a question you would even ask. So I wanted to ask another situating question about where this book lies in, in debates at present. And, uh, and this has to do with um, also how this relates to intellectual history, because it's really, uh, you know, a bit more of a cultural history, perhaps, than a sort of classic intellectual history. But uh, you, in, in some ways, it, you are engaging with sort of key aspects of intellectual history. And one of these is the the entire critical energy that is currently going into thinking about secularism um, as an issue that uh, is like a very much, a, I guess, now understood as a macro-historical phenomenon that, that describes um, key elements of how religion is situated in modernity. And uh, this term secularism is used not to mean what I think many people would understand as secularism. In other words, it's not what in the U.S. is known as secular humanism, right? right. A philosophy that is ten, uh, right. latently anti-clerical and overtly humanistic and, uh, and imminent. Uh, it's, it's also not what is understood as secularization, right? So it's right. not about the disenchantment of the world, the falling away of, of religious uh, understandings and church control and church power. It, it does touch on these things, and it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's a kind of a complicated history. But nonetheless, secularism now in the critical discourse means something else. And you are connecting your study to that literature. And I would just like you to perhaps define for the listeners uh, secularism as you understand it and why it's actually significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I actually came to the, to the term secularism late. Um, so the, the project itself started with my fascination with, with this phenomenon of Jewish anti-Catholicism, one minority speaking about another in, 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 in their attempts to become modern citizens. Um, and I ended up in a in a in, in a research fellowship um, for a year that with people who all worked on secularism, and I really only then realized that there is a whole group of people who are deeply critical of secularism, and it's to this literature that I'm that I'm trying to speak to, um, and for many of these critical thinkers, and and these come originally out of anthropology, religious studies, um, sometimes post-colonial studies. Secularism, as you say, is not simply the thing that ends up there, this neutral ground that you get when religion disappears, or the secular isn't isn't, isn't this thing that just that, that that is just there. It's something that that has a structure that we can analyze. So I actually I I took some of various of these newer definitions and, and appropriated them basically for my purposes. And my definition is rather broad and it's, it's broad because that, that works for me and I can explain why that is the way I speak about secularism. It's a set of expectations about religion and it is about how circumscribed religion should be. And that means it includes people we would perhaps call secularists in everyday conversation or many people would atheists People very purposefully attack religion because they think it has no no role in society, basically. But it also includes people who we might call middle-class practitioners of religion who decided, yes, there is a role of religion in their life, but this is a religion that will take place in a particular location, in a particular time only, um, and perhaps is gendered also, is a thing that their daughters can learn, but not their sons, for example. Um, so 
I try to include a wide variety of people in, in my concept of secularism. Among, first of all, because I want to show certain underlying assumptions that many people share in the debates I'm looking at, who at least at a first glance seem to be on different sides of that divide. Basically, you could be looking at people who are very clearly arguing for a separation of church and state, and then others who, you know, in parliament will stand up and will say, no, no, separation is a problem because we need to control the church. The state actually needs to control the church. And what I try to tease out is also where the, the shared assumptions are. So that is that is one intervention, certainly. More into the literature, not in that case, not so much into the literature of secularism, but using the literature of secularism as an intervention into the way we've written German history and, and European history. And then also it has to do with the fact that I'm dealing with two contexts, two very different contexts, France and Germany. And Germany itself is, of course, not homogenous. Um, and, and again, is a, a very complex patchwork of, of sovereign states. Um, so I wanted to find terms that I can use analytically that will both work and not work for both both contexts equally. Um, and both in the German and the French context, you certainly have historical terms that one could use. There's Confessionslos in German in Germany. There is laicité in France. Um, all these terms themselves, of course, have a history, and you would have to decide <laughs> which of the many layers you would be trying to use. So I decided I'm actually using, that I'll actually use an anachronistic term, a term that certainly in the Enlightenment no, nobody would have nobody would have used, as, certainly not as a self-description, not even as an insult, um, and, and try to make that productive for my purposes. Um, if I could just jump in there. So just this might also clarify this term for the readers a bit more. Mm -hmm. Anti-Catholicism. We talked about the Kulturkampf, mm -hmm. right, and anti-Catholicism. And it's not about disliking Catholics principally. Sure. So what's the utility of anti-Catholicism for a, a secularist project? Mm -hmm. So when I try to understand secularism, I try to look not so much at the things people say about themselves. And this is certainly what people have done also in Jewish history. They've done it in many other cases too, but especially since we're talking here about a minority that is under pressure, the way people have tried to understand what it means for Jews to become secular is to see all the projects they had to reform themselves. My sense is that secularism is a lot about the religion of other people and how they should reform their religion. Always a much much easier proposition, of course. So anti-Catholicism, in the context I'm describing, just seems to be the central, the central other that defines what a good religion is supposed to look like. And it does it surprisingly in a context where you have mostly Protestants, if we look at Berlin, for example, and it works similarly in, in, in Paris, uh, in a context where basically the vast majority of the population is Catholic, um, or at least nominally Catholic. So anti-Catholicism and anti-clericalism, and I ended up putting only anti-Catholicism in the title because you know, there are only so many antis you're allowed to have in a subtitle, but, but it is about anti-Catholicism and anti-clericalism ultimately. And 
both of these create are, are debates about the about the Catholic Church that define pretty much what a person is supposed to look like who is a modern citizen and, and does religion. Um, and, uh, yeah. Oh. Related then to this um, literature on secularism, there's been a great interest in this literature on religious minorities, probably more interest in Jewish as a minority group than Catholics as a minority group. Um, uh, I'm thinking, for instance, of Dagmar Herzog's book on pre-revolutionary Baden in, in the 1840s and uh, the fact that liberals in the 1840s began to support Jewish emancipation. Um, and, and she connects that to the, you know, the liberal attempts to reform the relationship of church and state, uh, which is, of course, part of secularism, as you've, you've mm-hmm. kind of suggested. Um, why are minorities so important? And what do we what do we learn by looking at the this debates about liberalism and secularism from the perspective of the minority, which is something I think that is new with your study, because many people, as I've said, looked at Jews within the context of secularism, but rather as something that from the perspective of essentially non-Jewish liberals, right? Right, and and I would say that actually even looking at so, so the literature on secularism that has been interested in minorities seems to have been interested in coming out of post-colonial studies, seems to have been interested mostly in, in Islam, I would say, and in colonial politics in India and, and such things. Um, and I think there is a more recent, wider interest, actually, in, in, in Jews and, and secularism, but I think these works are just coming out. And uh, I'll just plug another book. I'm actually editing a volume also on, on Secularism and the Jews, which should come out next year with, with several essays on that topic. Um, why are minorities important for the study of secularism? Um, and why can Jews be important, much like Muslims have been important in the literature? Uh, one argument, one central argument has been the accusation that secularism is a false universalism. That is, people say... Well, you should become part of a secular world by abandoning a particular religion. And it seems that this secular world is indeed just is, is neutral. You, don't, you finally don't have to be something. You, you just can be a citizen, a rational citizen. And it's precisely when you start to study those who don't seem to be easily included in that secularism that you notice that that is a false universalism. So a classic example of that um, cited by, by a prominent scholar recently, Joan jo Scott, who wrote about the veil, is this notion that, well, why do certain religions need special holidays in Europe? And well, why do they need to, to ask to, to, to leave work? Well, the universal holidays that are secular holidays happen to be Christian holidays. So for a Christian, you don't actually have to mark yourself as religious. You don't have to do anything to not be at work at, for, for Christmas. Um, you can be culturally Christian, and that's not an issue. That is much harder when you're a Muslim. Suddenly it becomes, it becomes a religious issue. It can't be just a cultural issue. So there's this sense that it seems that there are universal rules, but somehow the universal rules just hide the fact that these are the rules of certain people. 
And other people have criticized the idea that, well, secularism has to do with class. Basically, there is a middle-class notion here that's being, that's being promoted and, and, and that well, the agenda isn't open. It seems to be about just pure rationalism, but it's not. So I think Jews and, and Muslims have, have had a role in that and will continue to have a role in that because I wasn't just writing about one minority, but in fact about two groups who have been marginalized. And the word minority is, of course, tricky when we are talking about Catholics, especially mm-hmm. in certain areas in a, in a place like France. But if we're just speaking about discourses of state and politics, I think there, there, there are good reasons to speak about at least Catholicism, the Catholic Church, as, as at least a group that people aspire to, to exclude from, from those realms. Um, so I'm actually talking about two marginalized groups. And from analyzing the relationship between one marginalized group to another marginalized group, my sense was that this accusation of false universalism doesn't actually get at the heart of the problem for a minority like Jews, at least. And Jews themselves, in fact, were accused of false universalism. The accusation of the enemies of a particular type of secularism was that secularism and separation of church and state and and various ideas that we associate with secularism are really Jewish ideas. They're really a Jewish invention. So the the accusation itself that secularism isn't neutral has a a history and it ties into the history of anti-Semitism as well. But there's also the sense that, well, what, what was the problem for Jews as they entered the public sphere? How did false universalism really affect them? And my sense is that what people have emphasized is only due to a certain limit. And people have emphasized that Jews couldn't speak about themselves, basically, as Jews in the public. There's this idea of, you're, well, you're a Jew at home, but publicly you're just a citizen. And from analyzing parliamentary speeches and parliamentary performances, really, of politicians, Jewish politicians, my sense is that that is not really true. In fact, it's expected of them. Jews can speak as Jews, especially when Jewish topics are at issue. Um, They are the experts on the matter. Um, Sometimes parliament will wait for them to, to return. They're needed. Where false universalism does come in is when one minority wants to speak about another minority. Now, as I mentioned when you asked me about why anti-Catholicism, why anti-clericalism, anti-Catholicism is one of these central issues that defines secularism, but it just defines politics too. Parliaments, as soon as they start to really legislate actively, have to legislate on, on the churches and in that case, on the churches, not as a religious issue, but because the churches are a political issue. They are, as, a, as powerful entities in the state, the state assumes the prerogative of regulating them. That means the minute Jews enter these, these bodies, they also start to legislate on what some can see as a political problem, and certainly the people who propose legislation see as a political problem, and others still see as a religious issue. So the conflict really starts about what, what is a political issue, what is a religious issue. And my sense is that the problem for Jews was they were challenged as basically being an involved party. They cannot be neutral people. False universalism basically means one minority cannot speak about the central issue, which is another minority, 
because they will be seen as as partisan. Basically, they cannot speak as neutral people. Um, you know, if Jews legislate to limit the power of the Catholic Church, well, is that just a reaction to Catholic anti-Semitism, or is that just an expression of a particular Jewish way of of, of doing of doing secularism? Um, so it's it's my sense that that is why. So, so that that would also be my intervention, basically, into these larger debates about minorities and secularism, and really two topics that we cannot think apart anymore in in, in current debates about about secularism. Yeah, no, those are, are many thoughts come to mind when you're when you're um, talking about this uh, false universalism, and then also the um, you know you have that interesting section where you're, I think you're looking at French parliamentary debates from the 1840s to, and then moving on to German debates in the 1860s, 1870s, where you um, you talk about the ways in which the Jewish parliamentarians, <clears throat> the, the moments in which they're it's quite understood that they are going to um, speak not as the universal citizen but as the Jewish citizen, uh, and then in other cases where they they are challenged uh, for uh, for appearing, trying to appear universal. Um, um, and being accused by their opponents of being particular. Um, so maybe, you know, I had some questions about method um, and so on, but maybe maybe it would be good now to move a bit more into the substance of the book. Um, you, you know, you, you work chronologically. You've, you have several chapters, one, I think, on late, late Enlightenment, um, one in the Romantic Era. You look at the sort of period of 1848 revolution up until the 1870s, Kulturkampf, and then you end sort of on the question of uh, late 19th century anti-Semitism and so mm-hmm. on. So, um, you know, I think what, what is interesting um, in your argument here is the ways in which you're looking at how um, Jewish anti-Catholicism changes and how that change also reflects um, uh, evolution of secularism, because, of course, secularism is a constantly changing project. And there are, as you said at some point, multiple really secular projects that, that in a sense, can be seen to contradict one another. Um, so, so if you wanted to, um, you know, I certainly want to talk about the issue of confession. I don't know if you'd like to say anything about the, the late enlightenment, um, sections mm-hmm. or, uh, sure. Um, I mean, for me, the, these stages are, are not just stages of secularism. They, because everything changes, the Jews involved changed, politics involved changed, what politics means changes. Um, their enemies change. And indeed, the, this whole envi- secular secularist environment changes. W- what it means to be a good citizen and what the foils are that now define a good citizen. Um, but I, I can just briefly, perhaps, outline these these, these stages uh, that I try to show in the chronological chapters of, of, of the book. And at the beginning, indeed, is the late Enlightenment. So before that, it's not that before that Jews never speak about Catholicism. And my sense is what they can do is is be disruptive in a sense. What they can adopt is that well, they certainly see in their environment the conflict between Protestants and Catholics, and they certainly can read and enjoy and share the very often lewd uh, anti-Catholic propaganda coming out in very often pictorial form. The new thing really in the late Enlightenment is that Jews can actually say something by doing that. They can say something about politics, how they imagine the idea, the ideal body politics, well, what they imagine it to look like. Um, so I start with Moses Mendelssohn, one of the key figures, really, of the Jewish Enlightenment, 
the first prominent Jewish intellectual in who who writes a, a key text in, in the 1780s, Jerusalem. So I, I, I traced back the origins of Jewish anti-clericalism to, to that period. What I discovered is that in this period, Jewish anti-clericalism is highly successful, actually, contrary to what one might think. What does it mean to be successful? They can actually prove to be universal citizens by being anti-clerical. In an Enlightenment context, in a late Enlightenment context, there are several Jews who basically write for a German and French audience about the problems of the Catholic Church, including proposals how to reform the Catholic Church, so it's not so backwards. And from all we can tell, for all I can tell, their environment actually thinks that's, that's a great thing. They're showing they're not the old Jew anymore. They've, they've moved beyond their old ways. And even though they're writing about another group, they're actually, they're actually exhibiting an enlightened worldview. The assumption we might have as sort of coming out of basically a, a traditional narrative of progress is that things get easier and easier for Jews. But the story I'm telling is actually the inverse. When Jews enter politics, it's very easy for them to be anti-Catholic, and it does what it's supposed to do. And then the story continues to be one of increasing challenges to that model. And the first challenge is, is the rise of Romanticism, the Napoleonic period, basically the, the post-French Revolution era. Um, during the Enlightenment, Jewish anti-Catholicism can still sometimes be a loyalist act. Especially when you have kings who are trying to assert their rule against the church, or when you have, as in the French Revolution, outright anti-church regimes. In that case, you can be both well, a good anti-clerical in relationship to your other, to your fellow enlighteners, and to the king. So that follows a very traditional model, actually, of how Jews do politics. In the Romantic, in the romantic era, that doesn't work anymore. Um, so even starting with the Napoleonic regime, but then even more in the, in the, in the, with the Restoration regime, regimes after 1815, these, these, these regimes that come out of this turmoil try to create new alliances with the Church. Being anti-Catholic, being anti-clerical is now an oppositional position. And people who are closer to the Jewish community, who in that sense are more mainstream, who represent others, actually are now unwilling to, to go that way. That is not, that's just not a, a winning strategy. The people who will now be interested in anti-Catholicism are really oppositional figures. People like Heinrich Heine, basically, who are artists who, the only thing they have to lose is their reputation of really saying edgy things. These types of people will now well, now they'll be anti-Catholic, and they'll actually develop a new type of anti-Catholicism because the the because they're because of the type of investment they have. It will be highly polemical, and it is, as in Heine's, uh, highly poetical, as well. The next step really comes with the mid-century, and 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 the, the key moment here is 1858, the the Mortara affair, um, which, by the way, is also the 
depicted on the, the image on, on, the, on the book. This is a famous case um, at the time in which a Jewish child is baptized by his, by his nanny when he was very young because he was sick. The nanny eventually confesses to her priest. The priest well, reports it up the chain. Um, all of this happens in the papal states. So the Pope is not just the spiritual leader there, but actually the political leader of this area is happening in Bologna. Um, and the result is that the papal police come and take the child, come and take the boy and take him to Rome where he will be raised as well, in the Catholic church. And eventually he becomes a priest and will stay a priest in fact for the rest of his life. This case deeply offended not just Jews, but many liberals, because it went against ideas about what a good family is supposed to look like, the integrity of the family, the integrity of the head of the family, the patriarchal family is being broken up here. So there was wide outrage about this. Um, I wouldn't say that this case actually creates Jewish anti-Catholicism. Actually, in the, the immediate aftermath is not really, you don't really see so much of a rise of Jewish anti-Catholicism, mainly because they're still trying to plead with with the Pope directly. Um, but the result really of 1858 um, and several other moments that, that I, I won't go into is that Jews have the sense that there is, that the people who are against the Jews are now the people who are also against the rest of the world and against the liberal order. So well, I'll mention one more, one more event. That's the syllabus of eras of 1864, where the papacy, Pius IX, published a list of mistakes of the modern era that he condemns, democracy, freedom of religion. Um, so this was, again, one of those instances when Jews, in fact, when it was not about the Jews, but Jews could really now see this as a global fight. Um, so it's in this period that actually anti-Catholicism becomes something in a sense, easy again. It becomes something convenient again. This is the period when Jews will, in fact, be somewhat embraced by the liberal parties in Germany, for example, and they will follow their anti-Catholicism as well. And this leads us then to the Kulturkampf, the, the, the conflict in the 1870s that I mentioned earlier. And eventually, with the rise of anti-Semitism, this whole story comes to an end. So, the rise of anti-Semitism, the Dreyfus affair, there are still several moments when it does seem opportune, in fact, to be anti-Catholic. But eventually, the costs are too high. Um, to be an outspoken Jew and say something against the Catholic Church will just undermine the organization you're trying to join that is challenging the Church. So it, become, it makes more and more sense for Jews to just not say something publicly. And that's pretty much how, how the book ends mm-hmm. then. Very good. Um, something going, going back to the, maybe the 1840s, um, you know, there's a question as to why Jews, you tend to speak of Jews as a sort of whole in a way, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. but there seems to be an identification with the aims of liberalism on a whole, in a, in a general sense, that seems to be an, a, a, a general point of, of uh, an agreement. And there seems to be uh, an agreement on at least some aspects of secularism. In other mm-hmm. words, it's in the interest of Jews as a whole to back a certain kind of secularism. And um, 
And it's the secularism, I guess, that allows them, for instance, to be taking equal part in parliament and to self-identify as Jews when speaking about Jewish matters. You said that was a surprising finding, uh, which I would agree with you. But it, it does make sense in terms of the way that people understood um, uh, the, the proper organization of religion at that time, which was not um, complete uh, let's say sending it completely to the private sphere, right? There was, there was a sense that Jewish, that, sorry, that religious communities properly organized were a healthy part of modernity. That's right. Right. And, it, and the, the, I guess the word that we would tend to connect it with in German history would be an idea about confession, mm-hmm. right? This German word confession, right? Denominations right. and so on. But there's really a, um, I, I think we're kind of projecting a, this notion onto the word confession because, um, in the, at the time, confession tended to often be understood negatively as, as the, exactly the wrong kind of being religious in public. But nonetheless, you are using the term somewhat positively, saying that there was a strategy among Jews, particularly in Germany, to present themselves as a confession, present their religion as worthy of the status of confession, as a, like especially Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you say a bit more about that that particular moment? What? Wh- how can we bring together secularism with an idea that we're going to have a society that's formed of confessions, right? Denominations. Right. It seems to be counterintuitive, but and it's probably not. So. Right. Because well, even in the one of those. those big traditional narratives, how do we get to the separation, ideas about the separation of church and state, how do we get to ideas about the neutral state, it's usually the wars of religion that are central. So it's in fact the big claim of the modern state that it can transcend these awful religious conflicts. And in that sense, it presupposes in fact a society that is divided. That's why you need the modern state to begin with. Um, and it is interesting to to think about well where where first of all I think you rightly pointed out that that I, I used the very the collective term Jews and there were Jews of course who, who dissented from that position and I'm also only talking about Jews as far as their public persona is concerned this this, this is a political position so I would claim that it, this is the political position of most Jews who felt they should express themselves politically. Um, but there were also others, and orthodoxy is, in fact, in Germany, one, one of the exceptions to, to that pattern. And orthodoxy, much earlier than liberals, had alliances with the Catholic Church. Um, some things that liberal Jews would eventually turn to as well once in the Weimar Republic other, <laughs> other options fail. Um, the, this notion that you that we need religion to some degree in society for society to function. I think that is indeed central. And that's also why I use this type of term, why I define secularism the way I do. Because if I would go for secularism as atheism, which, which, which one might, I end up with so few people. And because my book really covers well, 130 years approximately, um, I would end up with enough material for the late 19th century. There you can find enough atheists and, and many people you've written about as well. Um, but the earlier 
I would move, the, the fewer people I would find. And basically, even in the, if, if I look at parliamentary debates in the, the 1860s, it's, it's very hard to find, <laughs> to find a single secularist speaking out. Um, so in that sense, I think, I think you're right. There is even, and this is true even for France. I mean, we're, we're more used to speaking in these terms in Germany. In France, there is a somewhat a historical tendency, especially from political scientists, to project back the notion of laicity. Basically, you have the French Revolution and the, the excesses of the French Revolution, as people say, that's the cult of the supreme being and so on. So you have, you have great, very tangible examples of how radical the French Revolution tried to rethink religion. And then somehow people skip over most of the conflicts of the 19th century and you arrive at the separation of church and state in 1905. And you seem to have a continuity in France of a concept of laicité that really means there cannot be religion in the public sphere. Mm. And that is not really what 19th century French history looks like for the most part. Um, the Napoleonic, this new Napoleonic consensus that is created with, or attempted a consensus that is created with the Concordat, with the Catholic Church in the early 19th century, really tries to, pretty much like in Germany, find a particular role for the Catholic Church. And it is it was originally Napoleon's attempt to co-opt the Catholic opposition and to divide them, in fact. And liberals throughout the 19th century are not so sure if they want to end that, that type of arrangement. Um, it's only very late that you get the majority for the separation of church and state. So I think it's true, and it's true for Germany and France, in fact, surprisingly. Surprisingly, at least for, for people who are part only of the political science debates that that I've read. Um, just, I, I want to stick though still to confession for a moment. Mm -hmm. So, there's a, there's an argument made by liberals in the mid 19th century that um, that there is a positive role for religion, mm -hmm. but that the, the Catholic Church is not fulfilling that role. Yes. And for Jews in particular, there there is some utility to being anti-Catholic and to joining that critique in a way to also construct Judaism as, as a modern confession. Right. Can you go into that just a bit? Any examples? Or? Well, so Jews, Jews do clearly confessionalize in Germany and in France. When in, in, in the various European contexts where Jews live, they basically articulate their own identity in terms that fit both the legal and political environment they're in. So the, the traditional division has been Eastern Europe, however defined, Jews tend to be identify more as a nation. They're part of multinational empires, and thus they're just one of the many nations that living in these empires. In Western Europe, they are trying to be a religion. That is the, the mold, basically, that is available to them. And I think as crude as that is, I mean, as, as far as these sort of crude divisions go, I think there's... there's, there's clearly something to it. What scholars have tried to show in the past decades or so is that Jews do actually adopt other forms of self-identification as well. Uh, in Germany, there's the term Stamm, which literally means tribe. Um, so forms of 
I mean, eventually the term ethnicity will be coined also in the, in the 20th century, then in the mid-20th century, to express something of an of a more biological <laughs> um, cohesion. Uh, so Jews do that in the 19th century already. They self-racialize sometimes. Um, the term race in France is also used by Jews um, with a liberal intention, in fact. Yeah. And so later, of course, you have the racialization of Jews from, from the side of anti-Semites. But there is also this notion of, well, the races come together and form the state. And Jews are just one of the many races, or in Germany they would say, one of the many tribes, you know, the Bavarians and Swabians and Jews, and they came together and they create Germany now. Um, so there, there was, so I think scholars have not undone this division. So in that sense, I think it's, it's, it's true. What they have done is, I think they've added some nuances to it. What they hadn't done, which is, but so what they hadn't done is, to argue that these types of representations, these ethnicized representations of Jewish Jewishness, that they could enter true high politics. And their confession was really the only game in town, it seems. The only thing you can say, well, either in parliament or, you know, in a, in a speech you might give to enter parliament and in, in your campaign, is you might say, I'm, you know, from confession, basically. Basically, I'm, I'm denominationally Jewish. Um, now, uh, but what I found looking at Parliament is that even that assumption isn't completely true. That ethnicized notions of Jewishness can even enter high politics. Um, but, but I think you're right. I think confession is is a central, the central model that Jews that Jews have and Jews will adopt. Um, and it will only fall apart once they feel the liberal promise is falling apart. Um, and, well, then we can think about history of Jewish nationalism, Jewish Zionism, and, mm-hmm. and, and so on. Well, moving perhaps in that direction a bit, um, uh, I wanted to talk about the, the sort of the end of the Kulturkampf as a kind of high point of anti-Catholicism when Jews... You know, uh, as you're suggesting, um, we're able really to identify with liberalism in a quite overt way in many cases, um, and be leaders of, of even uh, efforts to secularize the state. Um, the case you bring up is Edward Lasker, mm-hmm. uh, who was an important um, uh, leader of the national liberals in Germany in the 1860s, 1870s, and in fact, I think uh, was you know contributed to some of these pieces of secularizing legislation. Um, so I wanted to move now, I think this is then going towards the, really the, the, towards the end of the book, but the question of anti-Semitism, the rise of anti-Semitism and how that changes the field of play and, and how, uh, Jewish anti-Catholicism then, um, becomes less attractive. And I, I was, um, you know, there, there's this response that Edward Lasker gives to the rise of, um, uh, this anti-Semitism in Berlin, which is where he's based in the 1870s, 1880s. Um, you know, there's the, the court preacher, Adolf Stucker, mm-hmm. um, who is a sort of, you know, a, a conservative nationalist of a new vein. And then there's another sort of variation on the same theme, not from the, that background, but Heinrich von Treitschke, former national liberal, um, who's, you know, turning to the right and embraces the idea of a Christian Germany. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but Lasker, he's reflecting on Adolf Schucker and all of these anti-Semites around 1881 or 1880. Um, and he's writing to Jewish colleagues, other liberals, and trying to raise money for liberal campaigns. Mm-hmm. And he, I think he more or less writes one of these letters that, uh, um, that anti-Semitism is the, is the confessional mask of, of conservatism, essentially, and that uh, it's a way of trying to um, attack liberalism. And so his his advice mm-hmm. to his Jewish liberal colleagues is stick the stick out the stay out the course, pursue okay. the Kotua Kampf, support liberalism. You know mm-hmm. he says it's actually good because this is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. You know the real liberals are going to stick it out and those the lightweights are going to fly off. This is going to strengthen our party, anti-Semitism. Um, so just stay the course. Now, do Jews just stay the course with liberal anti-Catholicism? <laughs> I mean, okay, understood. Lasker's, Lasker's, I think, a very, you know, he's mislabeled by so many people as being anti-Catholic. I don't think he's anti-Catholic, but he's, right. he is anti-clerical to the degree that he believes that organized religion, organized Christian state religion, is impeding the growth of freedom. Um, Okay, but right. there's right. a couple of questions in there. But, but what happens? Do Jews stick it out with the right. liberals right. or not? Um, right. I mean, they're, they're never the most. So, so what I, it's 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 a tricky thing I try to do because there is the there is this old Catholic trope from that is 19th century Catholic publications that the Kulturkampf is really a Jewish invention, and that will be a central idea in early anti-Semitism, both in Germany and it will even come up in France. Not. The, just as after the Franco-German War, there's a very strange relationship now um, after 1870-71 between Germany and France. But still, as far as Catholics are concerned, they look over and see the Kulturkampf, and what they see is Jews basically disempowering the church. Um, so this, there is this big trope, and what Jews are never indeed... Or there are very few Jewish figures, and certainly not as Jews. They don't really belong to the most radical fringe of the cultural month. Um, in that sense, what I'm trying to show is, in no way, is, is not present. Not what the what the, what these these Catholic polemicists were claiming. I'm some in this case just trying to show that Jews are doing what other people are doing, but because they're other type of people, it actually means something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in that sense, they're not actually doing so many unusual, surprising things for liberals in the 1870s. Um, and there is an argument that so there have been scholars, if, if there has been literature on this at all, it has been about this very short period. And that there is another scholar, Olaf Blaschke, who would who emphasized rather that Jews were not willing to, to really fully embrace the Kulturkampf. And so we, we, we have a disagreement about, about that particular event and a Jewish investment. My sense is Jews are, are, are quite invested. The argument that really doesn't work for me is Jews are a minority and thus they understand what another minority must go through. Um, in fact, one fascinating thing I found is that, um, according to Bismarck's PR man, it was Bismarck who tried to argue this in one case when several Jewish deputies were not voting for a law he supported to prohibit the Jesuits in Germany, the Jesuit Gazettes. Um, it was Bismarck who actually wanted to 
suggest to some newspapers that, well, these Jews have these Jews have personal reasons. They they that's why they're not supporting it. Uh, he didn't mean it as an as a as a compliment. Today, of course, we mean it as a compliment. They're not the you know German liberalism failed. Only the Jews saw it. <laughs> they saw it first. So my sense is that that argument doesn't work for me. Um, they did indeed in this one case, this one anti-Jesuit law. In this case, they either voted against it or abstained. But those same people had a very mixed voting pattern, including one of the other leading Jewish liberals, Ludwig Bamberger, who actually was decided to abstain from rescinding the law later. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, I think it's, it's just a much more complicated story. Um, for Jews, once they, when, when they looked at the Kulturkampf, the, the, the way I, I try to read it in, as part of this very long story of, of Jewish anti-Catholicism is how much sense does anti-Catholicism make as a framework of explanation? And anti-Catholicism, like this whole notion of a clash of civilizations, and this is not a 21st century term, which is basically the equivalent of Kulturkampf. So how much sense does this make to explain the world? A good versus evil, backwards, progressive, um, enlightened, and, and, and unenlightened, um, rational, irrational. How well does this work to explain what you're experiencing? And in certain cases... It seems to explain a lot, and in others it explains less. So during the Dreyfus affair, for French Jews, it suddenly seems to make a lot of sense suddenly again. There are not... It, this is was interpreted mainly as a, as a conservative Catholics attacking a French Jewish officer and then French Jewry, um, and the, it was leftist Republicans who were defending the Jews. It seemed, it seemed, everything seemed fairly simple. When antisemitism really emerged as a force in Germany, as a mass, as a, as a phenomenon of mass politics, things were much too messy for that type of interpretation. And that doesn't mean that Jews wouldn't first choose it nevertheless, because it was a convenient explanation of one that they knew, one that they had trained to use, basically. So in the very beginning of the, of, of, Sort of anti-Semitic agitation in the late seventies. You do find Jewish articles, articles in Jewish newspapers that say, "Well, you know, the, basically you know, the ultramontanes, these sort of pro-papal Catholics, conservative Catholics, are basically just this is a new ruse. They just they came up with a new trick to well, attack attack liberalism, as you say. Anti-Semitism is just an attack on liberalism. Um, so that was one interpretation, but that fell apart." rather quickly. I mean, for some people it took a bit longer than for others, but eventually by by the turn of the century, by the time German Jews read about what is happening in France with the Dreyfus affair, this doesn't make sense as a global explanation anymore. The way it did make sense in the 1860s, for example, where they were reporting about things that had nothing to do with Jews in Jewish newspapers suddenly, uh, the Chilean parliament and the conflicts there between liberals and Catholics and, and just global news about the big conflict we're in. We know which side we're on. This makes perfect sense. These are our main enemies in Germany. They're the main enemy of liberalism everywhere. Um, in that sense, and anti-Catholicism as this type of singular ex- 
explanation, this Manichaean explanation of the world really breaks down. And I mean, it's, it's this notion of a, of a clash of civilizations that also drew me to the topic after that. It's the parallels between the way people envisioned the conflicts of the 19th century and are envisioning today's conflicts with, between the West and Islam, the way this is depicted. Um, similarly, uh, an attempt to, to reduce complexity to one very simple, reliable binary. Um, and once again, Jews are in, a, in an odd position of being both co-opted sometimes as a party in this conflict, um, but they can also be rather skeptical about why they're being co-opted, what that means, what, what that implies about their own role. Um, so the, these parallels, I, I don't think one should well, overstate them. They, I think they're very useful for asking new questions, basically, of, of events that, that seem otherwise very, very familiar in, for, to historians of the 19th century. Very good. Um, I had only one trick question, which I saved for the end. Uh, I was thinking about, you know, your, um, you do mention several um, converted Jews as protagonists. Um, and I was thinking of three that you mentioned, and only one of them you actually go into detail about. Uh, mm-hmm. Julius Friedrich Stahl, who was the famous, uh, essentially provided the most theologically sophisticated and and polemically well-articulated argument against Jewish emancipation in the 1840s, was himself a convert yes. from Judaism, uh, with Karl Marx at mm-hmm. the same time, and Heinrich Heine. So they're all three, um, you know, important mm-hmm. um, German-Jewish mm-hmm. converts to Protestantism. Um, this is getting back again to the question mm-hmm. of who are the Jews, right? Mm-hmm. So, so uh, um you know, why is only Heine worthy of treatment in this context? Right. Um, right, right. Well, Heine is an interesting figure because, the, I mean, the way I treat him is not just as a Jew, but somebody who uses his Jewish past in a very particular way to polemicize. And this is actually where the transnational history really is, is useful for me where the, the comparative element comes in, because I try to show how he's read differently. Once in Germany, as a Jew, this is a place where people know he converted to, Catholicism, uh, to Protestantism. They know why he converted. And basically, m- well, most readers, and, well, as far as we can tell from reviewers, uh, well, either they ignore that he claims to be a Protestant, or they... Or they don't believe it. Uh, in France, that's different. There are few people who understand this and many others who don't. And it's interesting to see what happens with these types of polemics uh, and how they're read and if they work at all or not. And my argument was his anti-Catholicism is really awkward in France and really works we- very well politically and poetically, statically in Germany. So here, it's not so much about me claiming that you know, Heine is, <laughs> we have to read Heine as a Jew because he was a Jew, uh, but rather he really, he, he uses it productively. This is a, this is a resource for him. And because he uses his Jewish background actively to write a particular type of poetry, tells us a lot about what it means to be a Jew in a certain place. Um, 
that might be true for other people too, and I just haven't figured out how to write that type of history. And I think I do actually mention Bernard too, who actually is a fascinating figure who does the inverse thing. He's a contemporary of Heine. He actually has huge conflicts with him. He's one of those few Jews who actually is very interested in Catholicism as an alternative, as a political alternative. And he translates one of the big French revolutionary Catholics, uh, Laminet, um, who also is uh, well, who is uh, removed from the priesthood and the church. So he's an unorthodox Catholic, certainly by the time Berne um, actually really is interested in him. But he translates Laminet's works and, and believes that Catholicism can contribute something to a utopian socialist project. And, well, Berne hoped that he could distribute his works among the German artisans of Paris. Um, so there are actually, a few, I guess there are a few more of these converts in there, but it's, it's particularly for Heine that I, I thought he actually gives me, gives me access to something I don't usually get that because he's so, it's actually because he's so hard to pin down that he's so interesting, uh, not because it's so easy to just call him a Jew. It's precisely because, he, because we can't do that in any simple way that, that, that we learn so much by reading him. Yeah, I guess the point is really about community in the end and who mm -hmm. is thinking either, they may be distanced from the Jewish community, but at least are thinking uh, in terms of a community identity and so on. Because, of course, with Stahl, uh, you know, he's anti-Catholic as well. He's a good Lutheran, right. you know, he's anti-Catholic. But his anti-Catholicism is probably to be understood in the history of Protestantism more than as a reflection on, right, right. on, on his uh, Jewish past. I, I wouldn't. Yeah, it might just be a book waiting to be written. Could I don't be, know. Could be, could be, yeah. <laughs> the other, the other class of of uh, of Jewish anti-Catholic th thinker might be, and this is where I was just wondering how you how you deal with this uh, uh, is would be socialists. Right. Um, do we have anti-clerical um, Jews after this period? You're suggesting in Germany after the 1880s, anti-Catholicism loses its appeal. Mm -hmm. Uh, in France, with the First World War, mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I know from looking at researching free thought that there are many leading free thinkers who are of Jewish background. Um, they, you know, they, I, I think they actually very clearly are thinking through problems of, of, you know, being Jewish in Germany, in my in the ones I've looked at. Um, but I, I was just curious about. Again, I was going back to this question about the connection between liberalism, in particular, and your mm -hmm. subject and your Jewish mm -hmm. community. Um, right. You know, what about what? What about socialist, right. anti-Catholic mm -hmm. Jews? Yeah, it's, it's something I haven't I haven't dealt with much because I think it merits a different type of approach. Um, I think one can certainly write about them collectively. I'm, I'm just not. I think one, one needs to think about how one does that, actually. And I, I don't know if I have. And what I ultimately wrote is the history of this type of question in the liberal era. And that's also why my so the, the chronology, the, the temporal limits of my work make sense, not just because I claim it was invented and declined, but also because somehow this is the era of liberal politics to some degree. And actually towards the end, you get to a type of mass politics that already is much more complicated. And that's actually where Jewish anti-Catholicism seems to become 
yeah, as a as a as a collective phenomenon in a sense, as a, as a phenomenon that one cohesively describe in, in terms of, of of a Jewish identity, um, it becomes more more problematic there. Um, the, I think the alliances in in this era of mass politics become more complicated. Um, I guess the Kulturkampf is, is always this sort of linchpin somewhere. Well, it com- comes out of the old liberal politics, that is, the, a politics where there are a few parties, or not parties the way we know them, really. And then the beginning of the type of mass mass movements that you need in politics to, to really get, get out the votes um, that are in part inspired by the Kulturkampf, especially on the Catholic side. And they turn, their success in turn propels uh, others to follow their example. So what I did write was, in a sense, the, the era of liberal politics. And when I do deal with Jews who could be part of the socialist tradition, certainly Berner can be read of you know, that pantheon, um, then it is because they are still liberals, because, mm. well, this is because socialism there is still emerging as an independent entity. And I think it's a different type of story one would have to write about Socialists who really are part of them of mass movement socialism, basically, not not just socialist thinkers. I think those those do fit in. I think, um, but but when when we get to to those, um, I, th- I think it would it actually it actually needs a different book. Well, it's, it is a sort of conversion, isn't it? I mean, you know, to become a socialist uh, right. often is a type of conversion away from other communities of identity. Uh, so it makes sense that they would perhaps you know, where the Jewish community as a whole might not find it any utility in being anti-Catholic. It could be that if you're a, uh, converted, so to speak, to socialism, um, that, that the, the religious question just has, takes on a completely different meaning uh, and requires a different response. Exactly. Um, I, mean, one play, I, I did, so originally when I did my research for this, I, you know, I would cast the net widely and I, well, I found so much stuff basically that I became very selective because... It turns out anti-Catholicism, if you want to write an intellectual history of it, you can start anywhere, basically, in any text. <laughs> so, so many texts of the 19th century. But one thing I did look at was uh, a Jewish lawyer in France, Cunha Bambarin, and, and he, has a, he, he was one of the people who drafted the law for the separation of church and state. Um, and he left a very rich archive and also... Uh, some biographical narratives. And I thought his biographical narrative really was typical of left Republicans or socialists. Um, he speaks about how he's born as a Jew. And then you have this, well, you need a narrative break that, that includes sort of the, the anti-Catholicism is also the break with his Judaism. It's, it's when you realize that all religion is bad and you, well, you move on and that's a different type of politics, I think. So I think in that sense, Anti-Catholicism still is a key feature for anti-clericalism. It still has to do with their Jewish origin, but it fulfills a very different function. It's about abandoning both their Jewish background and the Catholic background of their state, <laughs> mm-hmm. basically, or their, their society. So it's, it's this, this dual break. Um, which, I mean, you find some elements of that, I think, even among some liberal writers, um, certainly. I mean, just, you know, traditional Bildungsroman style of you know, going through your revelations. Um, 
but I think that 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 is there is that that that's how one would have to read um, these these socialists probably. Um, so very good. Well, I you know I don't know if the listeners heard this, but there were just bells ringing for about ten minutes. We we are sitting together in in a very <laughs> Catholic city of Munich. Uh, just to bring us back to the topic, so Catholicism has survived, yes, and they're still ringing the bells. Um, but that's also maybe a sign that we're, we're coming to the end of our interview. But I wanted to ask you uh, one last question, which is uh, it's the traditional question at the end of an interview, which is just tell us a little bit about uh, your current research and sort of what the future holds in, in the near term. So I've I've moved to a new century and uh, a, a very different topic. Um, a topic that, however, is again about Jews in another group, um, but uh, in a well, in a in a very different setting and with different questions. In fact, um, so I'm working on Jews and Roma, sometimes called Gypsies in the past, um, and their relationship. I'm curious about their relationship during the Holocaust, and I'm interested in their archival entanglement, as I would call it. So the, the the working assumption that I have is that so that that what we're dealing with is a unique case when we're talking about Jews and Roma, even though they had very little to do with each other in many places in Europe, even though even in the Nazi era they didn't suffer with each other, but usually next to each other, very often separated by a barbed wire fence. After 1945, the archives that are dedicated to the Holocaust, which come rather late, but also the earliest collection of Holocaust testimony, basically, well, they're only about the Jews, but what we do know about Roma ends up in Jewish archives. Very often does. Um, especially in, in the West, what will become the Cold War West. So I'm very interested in this peculiar, peculiar well, situation where, where two groups are are oddly unrelated in a way that Jews and Catholics live next to each other. So if we come back to my first book, um, Jews and Roma in many places do live next to each other, but they really live in different spaces. The way they, the shops they enter, how they move through the city, how they use print media for communication, all these tend to be rather different. And then you nevertheless end up with an archive where you have a single type of system where their testimonies are next to each other or where their history is next to each other. And I'm trying to understand what that does really. And it's of course a case of competition of memory in some, to some degree. This is what some people have emphasized. It's a case of memories inspiring each other. In all these respects, it's not unique to other types of competition. Where it is unique is precisely in this archival question. When we do speak about, there's a debate in France, the, that Holocaust memory is pushing out memory of the colonies, for example, in all these types of debates, and, and these are deeply polemical, difficult debates, it's not so much about the archive. It's not that one group owns the archive of the other group. <laughs> and, and so it's, it's this very special situation that I'm trying to, to understand and trace really, not just as an archival history, but as a history of a relationship that starts in the Holocaust or is, is intensified in the Holocaust and then, and then continues into the post-war periods of also breaking this strange barrier of scholarship sometimes that, you know, is either Holocaust scholarship or, or post-war scholarship 
and, and trying to bring these together as, as one relational history. And this is a Western European project. So it's a European project when it comes to the Holocaust era, basically Hitler's Europe and the uh, Europe of his allies. And then it is the Cold War West and the type of archives and histories that really will, after the Cold War also, dominate our scholarship. Excellent. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of interesting comparative work you will do, given the, the attitudes, particularly towards Roma in different countries, completely different mm-hmm. yes. uh, um, sort of histories there. So it will probably be a fascinating fascinating study, probably bringing to many things you hadn't expected, I'm thinking, yes. you know, comparing uh, Spain, Italy, um, you know, the attitude towards the Roma uh, is very different from what I know um, compared to even, you know, England, Germany, and so on. Mm-hmm. So, so. Anyway, sounds fascinating. Well, Ari, thank you so much for being with us today and uh, appreciate you have m- for making that long journey to Munich. <laughs> no. well, thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> okay, well, best of luck. Thanks.